Join us, friends. Great Scott Spockeye. Do they know what we have in store for them? They will if they tighten up. And don't double dribble. To the Grey Ghost, Spockeye? Exactly, old chum. No time to waste. To the Grey Ghost. We have not a minute to spare. It's showtime, friends. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. How are y'all today? This is the Spy Guy, and this is... Globe Trotting with Trey. And we are not wishing Cotton was a monkey, but you know, there are a lot of people out there who are. If you don't know what that means, you go back and listen to episode one. Today, we have our first special guest. It is my daughter, Caroline. So we're going to bring Caroline on, and I'm going to have to flip a couple of things here to make this happen. So everybody bear with me. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this right here, and there's Caroline. Hi. <laughs> hey, Caroline, and uh, Caroline is my daughter. Uh, she is, uh, oh, well, we're not going to talk about your age, because you're a lady, so we don't talk about that, but this is my daughter. And she is intrigued with a very particular case that was, what, what, what year was that case? It was in 2002. So I was uh, nine when it happened. So you were you were very little. And I remember the case uh, very vividly. Do you remember it, Trey? I do recall it. And I remember later on, I think uh, Dean Kane played uh, played him in a movie. Was it for Lifetime? Yes, a Lifetime movie. I think I watched it once. Yeah. Yeah, I think and you're I right. Remember, it was. And I remember the case being all over the news, of course, because didn't it happen on Christmas Eve? I know we're going to get into yes, it. Yes, okay. it was Christmas yes. Eve. Of 2002. So what we're talking about is the Lacey Peterson case with, uh, what was the guy's name? Scott Peterson was her husband. Scott Peterson. And so Caroline has studied this thing and has some interesting uh, details, if you will, about this, her thoughts about it. And a lot of it has to do with timeline. And what I mean is in the trial, they were trying to set up a timeline and Caroline thinks that the timeline was wrong. Of course, he's still in jail. If they got the timeline wrong, he's still doing time for it. But uh, she has some interesting thoughts about the timeline and how it all got set up. So tell us a little bit about the uh, about the case. For people that are not familiar with it, first, uh, Caroline, and then let's just go on into some detail. Okay, so it happened in 2002 on Christmas Eve, and I was nine at the time. So just to give you a little perspective... This case stuck out to me because my mom followed it so closely and it was always on the news in our house and I was a kid, so I didn't truly know what had happened, but I do remember seeing him talk, watching my mom do all the interviews. And now that I'm grown and I am 29, by the way, I'm not <laughs> scared to tell anyone I'm 29 and I love true crime. So any personal time that I have, I love to listen to true crime podcast, and I think it's really fascinating. Um, I don't like gory things or anything like that. That's not my interest, but I love people and I love studying people and I love to try to tell if they're lying and kind of just discern on my own what I think about a case. And um, I think it's really fun to read about these stories and to look really deeply into them and make my own judgment for myself. If I was on the jury, what I would determine if I got to make that choice. Um, so that brings us to, you know, the deep dive that I did into this case. I talk to dad about it all the time, whether he wants to listen or not. I think it's fascinating because um, I just 
his family, Scott Peterson's family, to this day still believes that he is just completely innocent. I think with the exception of one of his sisters, Anne Bird, I believe her name is, um, they share a mother and she actually wrote a book and does not think that he is um, innocent. But the rest of his family all is has been in support of him for all of these last years since 2002. He was sentenced in 2004 that he is completely innocent and had nothing to do with it. So um, I thought it would be interesting. We can just talk a little bit about some of the things that are ridiculous to me, that there are so many people that do support him and think that he had nothing to do with this. And his wife was just taken for him, from him and his child that was unborn, and he had nothing to do with it. So anyways, um, so Lacey was eight months pregnant on Christmas Eve, and her husband, um, goes the night before with her on the 23rd. They go to get his haircut by her sister. This is the last time that anybody sees her in person other than Scott, her husband. So that is our marker for the last time that anybody knows that she's alive. And that's on the 23rd. On December 24th, that morning, Scott says that he wakes up. It's a normal morning. It's Christmas Eve for them, but he's actually going to leave her and go to the San Francisco Bay. He's going to go to the Berkeley Marina on the San Francisco Bay and put his boat in. Um, and I mean, already it's interesting to me that he's leaving his eight month pregnant wife on Christmas Eve to go fishing. And he says that the reason he's going fishing is because it's too cold to golf. So, um, <laughs> That's de definitely way too cold to fish. So, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I know dad's not a golfer, but I don't know if Trey is, but, um, my brother's a golfer. I'm not much of a golfer, but yeah, it, too cold. That's not, that's, that's a terrible excuse. So, what I've heard from people that are avid golfers is that um, it's never too cold to golf. Right. It's always the right weather to golf. They will golf rains, you know, anytime that they can get out there and do it, they're wanting to do that. But anyways, that's what he says was going on that day. He was leaving his wife and Lacey told him that morning that she had some things she wanted to do. So she needed to walk the dog. She's eight months pregnant. It's December. It's Christmas Eve. She's going to mop the floors. She's going to bake gingerbread. She's going to go to the store and buy bread because she's supposed to make a French toast casserole for the Christmas Eve brunch the next morning. So she's telling him all of this stuff and he's like, okay, and I'm going to go put my boat in the water and I'll be back at four o'clock. So they're saying that they're going to meet back at four o'clock and they're going to go to Christmas Eve dinner at her mom's house. So she- is I have a question. Yes. Okay, let me ask you this. Boating was not a thing that he normally did. So let's let's talk no. about it. Let's get that out in the open. So boating, is that what you said? It kind of clicked yes. out. So boating, yes. So ultimately what people are going to find out that they don't know when this woman that is heavily pregnant goes missing, everyone is distraught looking for her. And she... Um, we didn't know originally that he had a mistress named Amber Fry. We figure out weeks later into the investigation 
that she is um, his mistress and he's had this going on for maybe six weeks at the time that Lacey goes missing, which is not that long. But if you look into the dates that he saw this woman and the amount of time that he spent with her, it was a whirlwind romance. And so he is actually introduced to her through um, a woman that he meets at a trade show for his job. And she, he's actually coming on to her and tells her he's like trying to get something started with her. And she's like, I'm actually engaged. And, you know, there's nothing that's going to go any further here. But I do actually have a friend that I would love to set you up with. So he gets set up with Amber Fry and they start this relationship. She is a single mom and they have a whirlwind romance. He, within two weeks of going out on their first date, which their first date actually was to a hotel before dinner for champagne and strawberries before they ever even went out to dinner. But within about two weeks, he was already picking her daughter up from um, school, from daycare school. I don't know exactly how old she was. There's not a lot of information about her child, of course. But um, that's a lot of trust to put in someone that you've just met. And they go Christmas tree shopping together and all of this stuff. But all the while, this mistress has no idea that he's married. She doesn't know. But the woman that set them up gets a phone call from someone else that tells her, you've got to know this, Scott has a wife. So she calls Scott, the one that set them up, and she says, you know, I've been told that you have a wife and I need you to tell me the truth. He denies completely. At first, I no, there's no way, no way, no way. I'm not married. I promise you I'm not married. You've got to believe me. And they get upset with each other and they hang up. And then he calls her back and he admits it, that he lost his wife. Those were the words that he used, that he lost his wife. And this is in... I believe November, if that helps with the timeline. So he's lost her in his own words. And he agrees that he's going to tell Amber, the mistress, that he has a wife, but he has to do it himself. He does not want the one that the woman that set them up to tell her. He's such an upstanding man. He's going to do this on his own and make this confession. So he asks for time to do that. The next day, getting back into the case and getting back to this boating thing, within 24 hours, he purchases a boat for $1,400 cash, which he never, um, he never puts it in his register. He never registers it. Sorry. And um, so this is quick. To me, my opinion is that he's caught and he needs to continue this relationship. He's so desperate for it that he's in his mind premeditating that he's going to have to get rid of his wife and his unborn child. So he's going to buy this boat and he's going to put her in the San Francisco Bay. And so that gives you a little bit of the timeline. This was the day after, and I believe this was sometime in November. So there's some premeditation there. And then we arrive to... December 24th, and he's decided that he's going to go boating. But what's interesting is he has told everyone that he's going to go golfing. And it's not until after phone calls are made that morning, after he's told his sister-in-law the night before while she's cutting his hair, 
that he's going golfing that day and that's the plan. Lacey thought, according to what he says, Lacey thought that he was on the golf course that day, which later gets him in a little bit of a lie through some of his own retelling of what happened and even messages that he left her. I think it tells on him himself, but that's the story. So he gets up that morning. He's supposed to be going to the golf course and he actually goes to his warehouse. He's a fertilizer salesman. So, oh, and to back up a little bit before he goes, he loads umbrellas, pool umbrellas. They're probably about eight feet tall into the back of his truck. A neighbor actually is a witness that she sees him that morning loading these umbrellas into the back of the truck. And he says hi to her and acts like there's nothing going on. And so she's not suspicious at all. She doesn't think anything of it. She's, and even looking back, she's like, he was totally cool and collected, but he's putting umbrellas in the back of his truck. What's interesting is he tells on himself there too, a little bit. He puts them in his the back of his pickup truck to take to this warehouse that he works at. And he gets there and supposedly he forgets to take them out. But he also tells on himself because he says that he's putting together a mortiser, which is a woodworking tool that arrived in the mail on December 20th. And he decides that on December 24th, that's the day when he's supposed to be out boating or golfing or wherever that he wants to put together this woodworking tool that he has no intention of using that day. But today's the day I'm going to put this together, which to me seems like a reason, a way that you can account for your time and a way that you can also place yourself there and make it seem like you are very busy putting together a mortiser that could have been put together in the other three days that we've already had to use as an alibi for some of your time. But what he says is that he's in the toolbox in the back of his truck, getting out tools to put together this mortiser. But what do we know from what he's told us is in the back of the truck that he keeps forgetting to take out is the umbrellas that he needs to take with him to Berkeley Marina to hide a body. So if you think that the body is there with the umbrellas, this all covers it up because if she's there, he needs to account for his time. He's telling us that he's using tools to put together the mortiser, but when you're in your toolbox in the back of your truck, you're not seeing the umbrellas and remembering, oh yeah, I need to unload these before I take an hour and 20 to 30 minute trip to the marina from where he was... Um, had his warehouse. And also another point that they make is that, um, well, two things. There's so many great details about this case that you can dive into literally everything that he tells in his interview, in any interview, anything that his family says, any receipt that he gives, anything, there's a story to it because he's not innocent. In my opinion, if you're having a regular day, there's not that much detail to it. You're like, I went fishing. This is what I caught. This is, it, there's nothing like that in this case. But anyways, he actually, all in all, from the time that he drove to the marina, it was about an hour and 20 to 30 minutes. It might've been about 10 minutes longer than that. But he's only out on the water for about an hour and nine minutes, I think they accounted for. So you've driven this long to only be out on the water for less time than you even were in the car to get there. And then you have to drive home and you need to meet your very pregnant wife at four o'clock. There was a park. If I remember right, there was a, a stamp ticket where he had to pay to park. 
that's how they determined how long he was there, right? He had paid to put his boat into the water, but he had also gotten a marina pass. I don't know exactly how these passes work, but you know, he said that this was a morning time decision because of the cold, but this pass for the marina was bought two days before it was even mm. used. He needed it for the 23rd and the 24th. So he bought it before he bought the boat. Before he bought the boat. No, the boat was purchased in November. Oh, I thought before that you said that the boat was purchased before the the, the boat day was before. purchased the day after he was told that he had to fess up about having a wife. Oh, okay. I missed that detail. Yeah. Ah. That's what I'm telling you. That's your motive. It's like, why yes. does he need to get rid of his wife? And that, you know, he's told, I'm going to tell on you to your mistress unless you tell her that you're married. And he's like, but I lost my wife. And so he needs to get rid of her. And that's a horrible thing to say. But that sets up this horrible thing that I think that he did. So he um, goes out and puts the boat in the water. A couple of things to mention that screw with his story are that it is salt water in the Berkeley Marina. He has freshwater lures. I'm not a fisherman. I don't know about these things. But if you're fishing in salt water... You need the right things to fish with. And he didn't take them with him. He said that they were on the seat of his pickup truck. He got frazzled, which, you know, if you're planning out a murder, I would say you might try to get the correct lures to make it seem like you're out on the water doing what you're supposed to do. But when you're frazzled and trying to get a boat into the water with possibly a body in it, you might forget them on the passenger seat of your truck. So, I mean, that comes back around on him as well. So he says that he fishes, but he never catches anything. He has nothing with him when he comes back to prove that he's actually fished or bought anything. He does have a few fishing poles in the boat with him. And I think it's a 14-foot boat. So this is not a very big boat. Um, a lot of people, his defense in the trial, it's uh, Garagos, his, his trial attorney, He's nuts. But anyways, he loves to say that there is no way that he could have pushed this body, a 150-pound pregnant body, out of this boat into the water. And um, I just disagree that that couldn't happen. I don't fish. I've never been in a 14-foot boat. But I do know that when people are desperate and they have a lot of adrenaline and it's life or death for you, life behind bars or, you know, freedom. He's going to work with some adrenaline, and I do believe that things like that can happen. And it was actually thrown out of being included in the trial that they had a man hired by the defense team try to go out into the water to show what it would look like trying to dump an, a 150-pound body, and it just could not be done. Um, other people said that it, it could have been done. But when you're hired as an actor by a defense attorney, you might not <laughs> <laughs> be making it look like it could be done. But that's an aside. So let me bring a couple of things up. He was a fertilizer salesman. A bag of fertilizer weighs 80 pounds. Somewhere in that neighborhood, that's only two bags of fertilizer. So that's 150 pounds. Saying that he couldn't move that, the average man could pick up 150 pounds and throw it off a boat very, very easily. 
The second thing is, and you hadn't brought this up yet, but you said that on Good Friday, pieces of her body were found at this same place that he went fishing that wasn't up the street from the house. It's an hour and a half away. Okay, so he was there, so we can place him at the scene of where her body shows up later. Yeah. That's not up the street from the house. He didn't happen by there. Yes. So Okay, so as a juror, I don't really have to hear anything else. How did the body get (laughs) an hour and a half away if Scott didn't take there? Well, yes. So sadly, um, about two months later, I don't know. Well, it was Good Friday, actually. I was going to say I didn't know the date, but she her body washed up on Good Friday and it was found on in the San Francisco Bay. It had washed up on some rocks. It was just her torso, which is horrible. And then the baby's body washed up about a week later. So she was pregnant at the time of her death. And doctors have gone back and forth. There were crazy things that were thrown out in the trial that possibly the baby was taken from her and then dumped in the body as the bay as well. It just crazy things like that. But most of the doctors said that it was the currents, the rocks, the pressure, the deep composition that caused her to deliver her baby that actually washed up on the shore. So they came separately on Good Friday. And it was in the San Francisco Bay, which is where he went shopping, shopping, fishing. So he says that he, you know, one thing that has been brought up is that he passes by all of these freshwater lakes that he could have taken this boat out into. And his boat is pretty dinky. It's better for fresh water. The man who owned it previously said that he never used it in salt water because he didn't feel like it was, you know, what you needed for saltwater fishing. And Scott purchases it and then takes it immediately to saltwater. And this is where the bodies are eventually found, which to me is number one of like, what? (laughs) That's where you were that day. But something that I find interesting that a lot of people don't bring up is I feel like there are some issues with our timeline. And if you want to say that there was a possibility that he did not have Lacey in the boat with him, he had a lot of time before 1015 when the cell phone towers are pinging to show that he is leaving his house on Christmas Eve morning from the time that Lacey was last seen alive when he's getting his hair cut by her sister-in-law at the salon. That's a long time. And it could have been used to kill her, and then also dispose of her body. I have a theory that there is a strong possibility that he has already dumped her some other way in the San Francisco Bay in the hours of the night before, and that he is going out the next day with this dinky boat to check and make sure that you cannot find her anywhere, that she has not floated up, that there's no signs of this body, And so he also talks about when he's in the boat that he pulls up to this little island area that's kind of covered in trash, which is interesting because he says that he feels like it's a good place to fish, but he never catches any fish. And it's interesting to me because I feel like if you thought something was going to float up or make itself known, you would be kind of checking around areas like that near where you dumped her, if that makes any sense. So I'm not 100% convinced that 
he did not get rid of her in the hours before December 24th because we have no proof ever that she was up that morning, actually. They have things on his laptop that they said were looked into that it was only something that Lacey would have looked at. And it was a sunflower umbrella stand and a gap scarf, which is a little, I mean, he could have easily typed that in on his computer to make it seem like she was alive that morning because he also Another needed thing. to set his own alibi anyways, that she was alive up until the time that he left to go to the marina to go fishing. Another thing I think I remember you telling me about this was that he uh, had a very detailed account of what she was wearing that morning, what she had for breakfast, yes. which I can tell you, if you ask me what you had, what you had for breakfast this morning, or your mother, or even the children, I would have no idea. It's not I a man thing. Valentine's Day with my husband last night, and... I promise you, he has no recollection of what I wore. He might think, oh, you looked good or I liked your outfit. But he could not tell me what color I was wearing. Nothing at all. So he, he tell us the description that he had. Oh, so exactly. Said, and man, that's not a man thing. No. Right. <laughs> he says that she's wearing a, a white long sleeve tunic and black pants and tennis shoes to walk and supposedly this is what she's going to wear to walk the dog that day the night before when she's at this haircut appointment and her sister is there her sister says that she sees her in a pair of um tan pants and like a black floral maternity shirt with kind of bell sleeves and her body when it washes up she is wearing the same pants that she was wearing the night that she was at the haircut appointment, which shows me she never changed her clothes into her pajamas. And I don't think this quite gets enough. Nobody's talking about it enough to me. I'm, I've listened to so many different things. I've read trial transcripts. I know it comes up, but nobody's really stuck on the fact of like, I, they don't know how he did it or, I mean, they're saying he's guilty, but they're, they don't know what he did to kill her. But it's interesting to me that she never went to sleep that night because if she had, she would have put on her pajamas, which he described in detail, which what man remembers that she was wearing blue PJ bottoms that were his, that she had to wear because she was pregnant and he just remembered it so well. And then um, he, he also remembers exactly what she was wearing the next day, which, you know, I mean, you might remember what you just saw your wife wearing or something. I don't know. I just don't really believe he, in extreme detail, remembers her breakfast that morning and provides receipts to show that the cereal that was eaten was purchased exactly 24 hours before. So it had to have been... Oh. I'm like, you could have so, eaten that yourself. <laughs> another detail that you mentioned was him putting the umbrellas in the back of the truck. I think that it's probable that he did that so if someone saw him put her in the back of the truck, when he got questioned about it, he could go, oh, no, that was umbrellas. Yeah. And he would have an alibi for what he was doing. You think he probably did the deed the night of the 23rd and maybe even disposed of her that night. Or highly possible. Or did he take her to the fertilizer place, put her in the boat, and then the next morning go get the boat? Possible. 
That's good. Possibly. And see, the thing about that is that they said that there was no way that he could back the truck into the warehouse area to attach the boat to it. So what people were saying is, you're saying that he had this body in the back of the truck, latched it onto the boat in, you know, in broad daylight and transferred her body to the boat and then drove it to the Berkeley Marina. What I think is what you said, he could have gone the night before. There's no surveillance. We have no surveillance information for anything with this case. It drives me nuts. There's like, I'm like anything that we could see her at the marina, see him at the marina, anything. But anyways, that so you have all of these nighttime hours that she's not accounted for. We do know that she was talked to her mom on the phone at 8.30. But after that, we have nothing else. What time, so, was, the, what time was the haircut again? The haircut was sometime in the evening. And then afterward, they came home. They watched Monday Night Football. They watched the movie The Rookie. And then they went to bed, which is what? You're and pregnant. Giving away too much details. He's, he's yeah. all over the place. Yes. Yeah. What pregnant wife? I've been pregnant twice. I was watched, not staying up all night to watch Monday Night Football. <laughs> yeah, right. We watched the football game and then we watched The Rookie, too. So that yes. was about midnight and then we went to sleep. Yes. So he said that. Well, the Monday night football would have been over at what? Nine o'clock their time. Probably West coast. Yeah. Maybe 10. And then you're right. See 11 or 12 PM. We go to bed. She was wearing her little blue uh, pants that I gave her. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next morning we had some cereal. I bought, but she is found with the clothes that she was witnessed in the night before the night before wearing. So that tells that she never changed those to go to bed. She never got up and got dressed the next morning. And there's also, if run by memory, there was witnesses that said something about um, seeing her walk the dog. I think it was neighbors. But yes. see, see, she walked the dog every day. So one day over another, two weeks later, you're not going to remember that. There's a few different things about this. Some people said that she was told by her doctor that she was not supposed to walk anymore. She was five foot tall and 150 pounds. She was pregnant. If you're five foot tall, you are carrying a lot of weight of a baby on your joints. You don't have a lot of length to your body to support. And I'm not saying anything about her weight. I mean, she was a tiny petite woman and she was pregnant. But that, you know, 150 is a lot, a lot, four or five foot. They said she was in a lot of pain joint wise. And then they said her doctor told her to stop walking the dog. So she is supposed to have stopped, but yet she's going to walk on Christmas Eve when she has a million other things to do. And also she's going to mop the entire house, says Scott, because he filled up the mop bucket for her, even though the maid came and mopped the entire house the day before. Which makes no mm. sense. What's so that means not mop the house and he's claiming that she did it. Yes. So, yes. so he said that he had to fill up the mop bucket. And I mean, if you're a little dumb about DNA and forensics and you're trying to make sure that they know the reason why your DNA is on the mop, even though you were saying that your wife was the one that mopped, he's like, oh, I'm a wonderful husband. I filled up the mop bucket for her so that she could mop the floor because she's so pregnant. If your wife is too pregnant to mop the floor, you do it for her. And also she just had a maid do it. And also, why is your wife mopping anyways when you should be helping her? And why are you leaving her when she's eight months pregnant on Christmas Eve? Maybe I'm a clingy wife. 
I'm not letting my husband leave me on Christmas Eve to go fishing for hours and then come back and meet me for Christmas dinner. It's Christmas Eve. We're spending it together. We're going to watch Elf and we're going to eat cookies all day, <laughs> even if we don't have kids yet. No pregnant woman, especially when you're hormonal, is like, yeah, have a great day fishing. He says they have this type of relationship that she didn't care. Um, she can't yeah, she, speak for herself. <laughs> she thinks you're going to out with this other chick down the road, <laughs> you know, for... Okay, let's talk about this chick. There was actually two more. So, oh. so there was actually three. Yes. So he had a he had uh, a track right record with that. So let's get into that. And that's the, that's the three that you know about. Know if there's three you know about, there's more. Yeah. Yes. So there's more uh, mistresses that apparently she was privy to during their marriage. And ultimately, I guess, I mean, we know they stayed together and she decided to have a baby with him. And they carried on with their relationship, but she, we don't think she knew about Amber Fry, but he says in an interview with Diane Sawyer that he did tell his wife that Lacey knew about Amber and, um, the wording is just strange. Um, she said, he says she knew, and, um, I'm not going to say she was not okay with it because nothing like that would ever tear us apart. Or something along those lines. Rehearsing. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. all over the place. You know, why you don't do stuff like this is because yeah. you're going to mess up somehow. Yes. Yeah, so he yeah. can't even, I mean, it would have been more realistic if he had said, yes, she knew she was devastated. And also a lot of people in her family said, if he had cheated on her, she would have told us if she had known about Amber and they had had a fight about it and he had admitted to it like he says that he did she would have called one of her sisters her mom she was close to her family members she would have called one of her friends and said she never told anyone that she never yeah. told what, what he said yes so, so she never told anyone but they said that in the past that when he had done these things wrong and had prior mistresses that um she knew about them and just didn't really talk about them with other people because she just didn't want to talk to other people about these things in her marriage for whatever reason, which we don't know. So it, it's just a both ways kind of thing on everything. It's she didn't know she did know. And every time it's always to his advantage, right? Because if she did know and she freaked out, that would make him seem like he murdered her because she found out. If she doesn't know and she's okay with it, that makes it seem like she didn't get killed by him because she was okay with his mistress. It's just yeah, like no he didn't reason. have to get her out of the way. He had no reason to do that. Yeah. Okay with it. So what about the phone to his father? Yes. So there's actually a phone call. I haven't been able to track down any recordings of it, but there is a phone call that he makes to his dad after he's leaving the marina and he starts calling people and he calls Lacey and leaves messages to her. Um, that message is weird, but it does stick out to me that he calls his dad and his dad has this unwavering belief that Scott did not kill Lacey and Connor, the baby, which he still to this day says that Scott cheated, which he says on in an interview that 95% of men in marriages cheat and that doesn't make him a murderer and it's no big deal. And he's not hurt about Lacey. He's not hurt about his grandchild. More than anything, he's just concerned about his son getting locked up for life. And 
all this brings me to there was a documentary, a docuseries that was done. Um, it's on Hulu now. If anybody wants to watch it, it's kind of a waste of time because you can't believe anything they're saying because it's all Scott Peterson's family in the interviews. And it's all Scott's defense team doing the interviews. So um, I'm watching this because I've known the case for years. I've read so much about it. I've listened to so many different phone calls. I've watched the evidence videos of the night that the police went and looked at the house. And then two days later, when they went back again to check it out again and see if anything was amiss. And it's just interesting to me that... um, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Okay, so this whole documentary, I'm watching it and I'm like, wait, what? Maybe he was innocent. (gasps) Maybe he was innocent. Maybe, and I'm watching it and then I start fact checking everything and it's just lies. Like they conveniently leave out anything that would incriminate him. And they create all... They're wishing Cotton was a monkey. That's what they're doing. They're pretending like these things are true, hoping that they become true and they're just not, but go ahead. So this brings me back to the dog in this, in this documentary, this is an example. They're saying that this dog, that she's walking the dog and that she's wearing the clothes that Scott saw her in. And all of these witnesses were not used or looked into enough by the police And they're saying that the police just wanted to put Scott away for it. They wanted to be able to solve this case. And they wanted Scott to go down for the murder because they didn't like him or whatever, because he cheated on her or whatever. And he says that she's in these black pants and this white tunic. But the police say, ultimately, we ruled all of these sightings out that messed up our timeline that they're saying are true of Lacey and that she was out walking the dog and somebody must have snatched her. Because when we found her body, that's not what she was wearing. So that just disproves it altogether. But in this documentary, that's what it is the entire time. So you really just can't believe it. Also, Scott's sister-in-law has a very weird obsession with getting him out of jail. Um, I don't quite understand why that is the passion of her life, to get her brother-in-law out of jail when he seems so very guilty and his own blood sister thinks that he's guilty but anyways i feel like she might have a crush on her brother-in-law but (laughs) that's his brother's wife yes i believe it's his brother's wife um and she's in this documentary going to visit him in prison and she's just crying because she's like he just doesn't deserve to be here and it's just it's sad honestly that she's this passionate about getting this man out of prison and crazy yes just nuts yeah so, so it seems like that family is, is a little bit dysfunctional, crazy anyway. Yeah. Because I remember the mother wearing oxygen. Yeah. Uh, when she was talking about Scott. Yeah, she was um, She was in very, very, very poor health and really wanted to see him um, be proven innocent in the trial. And so, I mean, his whole family supported him. But anyways, back to this timeline. So he goes to the Berkeley Marina and then he comes home, he's driven home and these messages. So on the way home, he does call his dad. I believe that there was some, he's letting his dad know I'm on the way back from the Marina. 
I am not convinced that his dad didn't help him this night before. I don't know if anybody's looked into this or what's going on with that, but his family is willing to go to bat for him. They don't want him to be put away for this. And I would not doubt that he called his dad or showed up at his house the night before. You've got to help me. And they went under the cover of nightfall, did whatever they needed to do to try to clear his name. And Scott had some time to come up with a story of what was going to happen the next day and where Lacey was going to be walking the dog and that somebody must have snatched her when she was walking the dog. So he says, he calls Lacey. We'll talk about the call and then we'll talk about when he shows up back at home. So in the phone call, he's he calls her and she doesn't answer and he leaves a message. We're coming back to this lie that I told you about in the beginning where he says that he told Lacey that he was going uh, golfing that day. She does not know from what he tells us himself that he's gone fishing. He calls her and says, hey, beautiful, I'm coming back from Berkeley. As if she already knew. Oh. But she didn't. Because if mm -hmm. she was dead, she wouldn't have known. And if she was alive, you would have needed to have communicated that with your wife, but you didn't until you called her and told her you were on the way back. If you're trying to create an alibi for yourself, of this is where I've been. I totally think you're alive. So I'm going to give you a call. He calls her beautiful in the message, which I mean, I don't know what cheating men do, but I don't think that most men that are cheating on their wife are calling them beautiful. I can't wait to see you. I'm on my way back home as if it's, it's just strange. The message is too fluffy. Also, he asks her, he's supposed to pick up this gift basket that was going to be in close proximity to him to pick up for a gift for Christmas Eve that night if he went golfing. But he waits until he's coming back from the marina to call her and tell her, hey, I'm just now leaving. Also, can you go pick up the gift basket for Papa? It doesn't look like I'm going to be able to get over there for it. So, and he's not apologetic at all to his wife that's eight months pregnant, that he's putting this on her in the middle of her baking and preparations for that night. He never says, I'm so sorry. I ended up going fishing. I didn't go golfing. I'm nowhere near. So you need to um, pick this up for me. He just sends her on this errand. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we're almost done. But anyway. Three minutes left. Um, let's talk about the boat anchors that he made. He didn't buy boat anchors. He made boat anchors. Yes. And my big thing with that is the police said that they found where he had been making cement, a cement anchor. He says it was one cement anchor for his boating. So you can't remember your fishing lures. You're not fishing for the right type of fish for the water that you're in. You're driving all this way to get out there. He bought this boat. He didn't register it to himself. But he does take the time to create a cement anchor for the boat. Just one, he says. And he mixes all the cement to do it, which is completely suspicious to me that somebody would make an anchor. Because why wouldn't you just go buy one? Right. This is what I asked Dad. <laughs> yeah. It's more of his story that don't make sense. And that's why. But see, but there's more than one anchor, though. There's what? Okay. So her body washes ashore. It's so awful. She's missing her head. She's missing her limbs. And um, 
there are these anchors that the police think that they can see the outlines of them on a plank of wood where he's created them, but they can't find them. So there's the one anchor that went on the fishing trip with him that came back. But then there are these others that they feel like they can see the imprints of, um, and they're not there. But the defense like, like To give you an example, friends, if you were going to make, make an anchor, you may, you may take a, a one-gallon plastic pail like uh, uh not not necessarily a paint pail something without lip on it you put, put cement in it and you put a loop in it of some some sort to hook something to he made more than one only one is still still there the other ones are gone i would surmise that those those are in the bottom of burke marina where i would expect to them to, to be yeah. um which also lets you know that there was premeditation if he made these in advance, because that's not something you can do the day of and then go use them. Um, which the whole thing is just nuts with the cement anchors. A lot of people go back and forth about if there actually were other ones. You can determine in your own mind if you think that he had some others with the way that her body was found. Um, so anyways, he does come home from this fishing trip and their dog, their family dog, Mackenzie, is still attached to his leash and he finds him in the backyard. So they also have a timestamp that Mackenzie was out in the yard with the leash on at about 10, 18, which is about 10 minutes after Scott leaves for the Marina that morning based on cell towers pinging. So that only gives about 10 minutes for Lacey to have gone outside to walk the dog and she got snatched. Ultimately that makes no sense to me for the defense to say, that this happened in like 10 minutes from the time that he left the house. They also have time stamped receipts from a bank withdrawal or deposit or something that the neighbor had and a receipt from where she purchased an item at a store that bookended her seeing the dog McKenzie with the leash on and she puts him back in the fence. So they know for sure that she saw the dog on the leash. So if he was trying to cover himself and make it seem like she was going to get snatched while she's walking the dog, he would absolutely let the dog out with the leash on, right? Just and leave he, him out. And then he comes home and finds the dog after he's been at the marina, sees that the dog still has the leash on, goes inside, washes his clothes from the day, takes a shower, drinks a glass of milk, eats pizza, and wonders, I wonder where my pregnant wife is. Her car's still in the driveway. Her purse is still here. And she's not here. And we're about to be needing to leave to go to Christmas dinner. So then he starts calling her family and telling them, is Lacey with you? But doesn't this contradict what he was saying when he called Lacey to tell her the message that she needed to pick up the gift basket? Because he was never thinking that she was there to get the gift basket, but he asked her to do that. Right. And Amy, the cousin that he was picking up the basket for that asked him to do it was also calling because she was trying to make sure the gift basket was picked up, but he wouldn't answer. <laughs> so if you're missing your wife and you know that she might've been going to get this gift basket, she could have gone with Amy, right? But he never even answers the phone call. So I don't know. It, there's just so many, I mean, there's just nothing that looks good for him. If you actually look at it from a normal perspective, um, it's a fascinating case to look into. There's a lot of information about it. Some of the best stuff you can look at, if you like things like this, if you want to look at a liar when they talk, is pull up his interviews. It's 
almost comical to watch this man try to lie. And he can't even lie. He's so heartless that he can't even pretend like he cares that she's gone. The only time that he ever lights up is when he's talking about how proud he is of his mistress for coming out and doing a press conference and admitting that she found out that she was dating him and his wife was missing. So um, that's, I know we're running out of time, but that's just <laughs> my two cents. And I hate, hate that we're out of time, but you've got, that was fascinating. And I know you've got no more. We'll have to get her back, uh, Trey, for another uh, another episode where we could, we could talk about, because there's a lot more to what you were, what you were just alluding to, where he's talking about her fry and light, lighting up about her, all those pieces. Yes. And the fact that, the fact that she had the clothes on from the night before and he didn't take into account one thing. And that's why you can't do stuff like this because there's going to be something that you go get caught. I mean, the current, he didn't take into account that, that her body would wash up in the, mm -hmm. in the area that he has a ticket of parking and putting his boat in, into the water that morning. Well, he also, he is up, they have proof on his computer that about a week before Christmas Eve, he was looking up the currents in the San Francisco Bay and trying to figure out about it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> come on, man. And there's also, uh, we haven't even talked about, about this aspect of it, but Amber Fry went to the police and they tapped his phone. Yes. So we've got all all that to talk about. All that to get into. So we we'll have to talk about that. That'll have to have to be another episode. We're out of time. We're over. But this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Caroline. And we'll have to get into those those pieces of this same story. It's very very fascinating. And uh, and uh, and I appreciate you coming on. And thank yeah. Trey. Yeah. Nice to see yeah. you, Trey. You too. And Spock. I will. All right. 